Welcome to Jews on Film. My name is Harry Adensasser. I've got a degree in film studies and I am a Jew. And uh, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel. Hi, everyone. My name is Daniel Zana. I'm a video editor, documentary filmmaker, and a former street urchin. Today, we're going to be discussing Oliver Twist from 1948. And today, to discuss it with us, our guest is a producer and director of 10 short documentaries. He's also a curator for Secrets of the Dead Film Festival, a short horror film festival in Brooklyn for over 11 years. He's also an actor that appears in the film Stars by Mars Roberger. He's got two books in publication for fall 2023 and currently serves as the grant writer and contracts manager for the Ohel Children's Home and Family Services. Jeffrey Wengrofsky, welcome to Jews on Film. So nice to be here. Thank you, folks. I think you're, I, is it safe to say that you are like a multi-hyphenate? I've got my fingers in a few, in a few pies. Yeah. I think we can say that. Yeah, I think, I think we'll stick with that. I, I mean, it's a pretty robust bio, you know, you got a lot going on, which is really great. And I'm, I'm excited for you uh, to be on the podcast and excited to talk about Oliver Twist today. Um, I wanted to know, uh, you know, we kind of start out the podcast with a few simple questions, but first off, why did you pick the Oliver Twist film and why this particular version from 1948? Okay, well, um, we are living through a, a time of uh, rising anti-Semitism, and uh, this film has a sort of archetypal series of depictions of the Jew as Fagan is oftentimes referred to in the text, oftentimes not even by name, but sometimes by name and then title. So I thought that would be interesting. Also, this is a classic. I think we can all agree that it's very powerful literature, and it's really actually also quite an astoundingly great film. Um, I think for, certainly from a technical perspective, in terms of its cinematography and all that, very, very strong. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't mesh with our values. What do we do with that? Oh, I think that that might make for an interesting conversation. Um, also, of course, look, it's a classic Christian redemption narrative. We can go through that. What do we make of that as Jews? Um, and um, yeah, I, I, I think that that's, that's, those are sufficient reasons. It definitely sounds like there's there's so much we can jump in off of that. And I'm really excited to hear some of your thoughts about you know, how it goes against our values and just get into that discussion. But uh, the first thing that I wanted to jump on, because, you know, you can't talk about this movie on a podcast called Jews on Film without talking about Fagan. And when we actually go through the plot afterwards, we'll get much more into this. But for those of you who are listening to this, who haven't seen the film, aren't familiar with it, you know, maybe do yourself a favor, look up a, a picture of what, you know, Fagan looks like in the 1948 version of Oliver Twist, because, I mean, it's, it's ripped straight from, you know, like a Nazi propaganda comic i mean you, you see there the you nose for, exactly for those listening jeffrey's holding up a picture right now for us so you can see it kind of up close but it's it's immediately striking and it's almost hard to to meet the film on its own terms especially watching now and i don't even know what it was like then for jews who might have encountered the film then knowing that it was such a explicit you know a uh, caricature and stereotype of this jewish persona but it's it's impossible to talk about and even engage with this movie without you know first just addressing that so i wanted to to put that out there you got to address the nose in the room for sure <laughs> you know <laughs> i think oh, yeah. uh i think before we get too far i just wanted to quickly say so fagin in this film is played by alec guinness who most people will know as obi-wan kenobi from star wars um and the film according to imdb 
uh, that is described as in Charles Dickens classic tale, an orphan wends his way from cruel apprenticeship to den of thieves in search of a true home. And this is directed and written co-written by David Lean, who we'll talk about in a minute. But I just wanted to kind of set a very brief little bit of context for, you know, what the film's about. Uh, you know, it's based on a novel by Charles Dickens and stuff. And, you know, like you were mentioning, Jeffrey, I think there's a lot to talk about the film in addition to the Jewish aspect of it. But is there any sort of context before we started recording? You mentioned briefly that you had watched other versions of the film and you read the book and, and all this. How does it sort of compare to other versions and tellings of this story? Well, I mean, uh, they all they all have different endings. The book the three films all have different endings all different interesting yeah um i i can tell you what they are if if that's not too much of a spoiler i mean for your audience <laughs> i think we have like i think at this point we're we're well beyond spoiler territory like these films came out quite a long time ago so the floor is your statute of limitations yeah exactly <laughs> exactly yeah all right so the night in the 1922 film which by the way fagan is portrayed by lon cheney man of a thousand faces Ooh, yes now there's okay. a real cinema name for you yeah um although i have to say well he doesn't appear to be Jewish in any conspicuous way. He just seems to be poor and messed up. He has bad teeth, bad hair. But even the prosthetic nose that he uses is not particularly, shall we say, Jewish. Sure. <laughs> um, and then in the 1948 version, uh, Fagan is taken away by a police officer. We don't see him again. And then in the 1968 version, uh, Fagan and the Art for Dolger uh, walk away into the sunset to their next caper. Um, and um, yeah, oh, in the book, the original 19, uh, 1836 version, um, Fagan is tried and he's hung, but before he's hung, uh, Oliver Twist begs God for the mer have, to have mercy on his soul, right? Because the Jew must be redeemed. Everyone must be redeemed, but the Jew must be absolutely physically obliterated in order to be redeemed. Whoa. That's, that, you know, I read somewhere, I was combing through Wikipedia, and I feel like I did a little bit of counting. I think there's something like 20 versions of this film. You know, we starting in 1909, 1912, another 1912, 1916, 19, 19, 1922, 1933, 1948, 1961, 1968, 78, 74, 82, 87, 88, 96, 97, 2003, 2004. By virtue of being a re-classic, people are going to have some interest in it. Um, also, the characters are fantastic. Um, I mean, Fagan, uh, whether you, you appreciate or, uh, or don't, um, and let me tell you, I mean, ha having read the original uh, Dickens, uh, not only does he refer to Fagan as a Jew, but he refers to him as grotesque, phantom-esque, uh, uh, as if he had just come out of the grave, there are references to him, not only as the devil, but um, as worse than the devil. Can you imagine worse than the devil? Nancy, 
who is a prostitute who ends up getting murdered by someone else, not Fagan, uh, refers to Fagan as the ultimate, you know, seducer. I mean, not seducer in a sexual sense, but she he lures her into a life of crime. You should recall in the 1968 version, the, the musical, Fagan, well, first he appears, <laughs> he appears, he's, um, he's smoking a sausage and he turns around and he's got, he's got a fork that looks awfully devilish. It's the same way in the film and in fact, the same way in the book. But then he launches into song and the song that he sings is, you've got to pick a pocket or two. And for me, that seems to be, that's very, very, very devilish because it's sort of saying in order to get by in life, everyone sins. So let's start now. Right. Yeah. There, is, there is no morality. The, the only thing you must avoid is getting caught. Right. The yeah. difference between being bad and being evil. You can be evil, but just don't be bad at it. <laughs> exactly. It's interesting. Yeah. The, 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 the picture of Fagin on the Wikipedia page shows him with that fork. I'm wondering if that's it's maybe from the from the book or something like that. But yeah, yeah go ahead, it's, sorry. In, it's in there. It's in there. It's in yeah. the book. And even that, and even in this version that we just watched, there's a lot of allusions to the devilish nature, you know, even if it's not called out explicitly, although it kind of is implicitly a couple yeah. of times, maybe we'll loop in the clip, but there's one where, you know, he's wearing a coat, he goes to a bar to visit, I forget who he's confronting, but, you know, he says something to the effect of... And there, there are a couple other lines and moments that, you know, felt very devilish. You know, one thing I'm thinking of is uh, when I, I think it's uh, Bill right later, who's having kind of he's he's thinking about, you know, after having killed his his uh, his partner. And again, we're about to get to all this in the synopsis. But, you know, he kind of has a, a literal devil appear on his shoulder, you know, as, as portrayed by Fagan. So there are a number of things that I clocked in here. And I'm really interested in the way that, you know. I think we're talking about Fagan as as a, allowing sin or, you know, don't as long as you don't get caught, you know, sinning is OK, that that role he portrays. And I think that's kind of exactly who he is in the actual film. Harry, could you do us a favor? I know usually uh, we do the IMDb summary, but now we're kind of we're, we're trying things out a little bit differently. Why don't you just tell us the synopsis of the film? Let us know what the film's about and then we can kind of take a quick break after that and we'll kind of get into it. Yeah, no, sounds perfect. So I will run through the synopsis of the film right now. <clears throat> Going to clear my breath a little bit before I do that. Um, and uh, and then I'll get us all ca caught up to the end of the movie so we can start talking about some of the bigger ideas. It begins, a young woman in labor makes her way to a parish workhouse and dies after giving birth to a boy who is named Oliver Twist by the workhouse authorities. Oliver and the rest of the children are mistreated by the officials in charge, Mr. Brummel and Mrs. Corney. When Oliver is nine, the hungry children draw straws and Oliver is forced to ask for a, sef a second helping of food. As punishment, he's made to work for the undertaker. When another worker there insults his dead mother, Oliver attacks him and is whipped. Oliver runs away to London and is spotted by a child pickpocket named the Artful Dodger. He takes Oliver to meet Fagin, an old Jew who trains children to be pickpockets. Fagin sends Oliver to learn from Dodger and another boy as they try to rob Mr. Brownlow, a rich elderly gentleman. They're caught and chased through the streets, though only Oliver fails to escape and is arrested. After a witness clears him, Mr. Brownlow takes pity on Oliver and invites him into his home. Oliver is lovingly cared for by Mr. Brownlow and the housekeeper, Mrs. Bedwin. Meanwhile, Fagin is visited by Monks, who has a strong in interest in Oliver. He sends Monks to the parish to acquire a locket left by Oliver's mother that contains her portrait and can identify Oliver's true parentage. 
Fagan's associate, Bill Sykes, and his girlfriend, Nancy, run into Oliver on the street and take him back to Fagan. Nancy later sees a poster offering a reward for Oliver's return. She contacts Brownlow and promises to deliver Oliver. Fagan, having been suspicious of Nancy, had her followed by the Dodger and learns of the scheme. Fagan informs Bill Sykes, who murders her, believing that she has betrayed him. The killing inspires a public mob against Fagan's gang. Sykes attempts to escape by taking Oliver hostage. As they're climbing over the rooftops, Sykes is shot by one of the mob and is accidentally hanged as he loses his footing. Mr. Brownlow and the authorities rescue Oliver, while Fagan and his other associates are rounded up. Monks is also arrested for trying to destroy evidence that would give his inheritance over to Oliver, who it turns out is Mr. Brownlow's actual grandson. Oliver is happily reunited with his newly found grandfather and Mrs. Bedwin. There it is. There it is. Um, Thank you, Harry. That was awesome. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll discuss some of the themes in Oliver Twist's, in the 1948 version of Oliver Twist, directed by David Lean. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are discussing the 1948 version of Oliver Twist and just wanted to start off our conversation by talking through some general impressions. I know, Daniel, for me and you, this was our first time both watching it. I know for myself, for you as well. Uh, it seems like, Jeffrey, you're more familiar with it. But what was everyone's impressions rewatching and especially in the Jews on Film context? I had seen an Oliver Twist version growing up, and I think it was probably the version, Jeffrey, you were talking about with the Picker Pocket or Two song. That was, it's like a 60-something version? 68. 68, yeah. So I was a little bummed that there were no songs. I feel like there could have been like a good Oliver song, a good Fagin song, whatever. But, you know, I can always watch one of the other 22 versions of this film and get what I need from there. Um, I thought the like the whole morality tale of it was terrific. Like I Like, legit, I thought was it was terrific like the the way that this film depicted you know london at this time and the way that they kind of i mean we, you know we just uh did an episode on hail caesar which was all about like 1950s cinema and then seeing 1948 cinema and the way that they actually did a lot of these special effects with the editing tricks and these matte painting in the backgrounds with that you know the hideout with the bridge and sort of everything i just loved it all and uh really well done film some of the portrayals were terrific um obviously the like i said you know the fagan portrayal at a certain point i kind of got over the nose and just you know saw through it or saw past it um, not just the nose i mean there's a lot there yeah for sure like there's, there's the, the well, counting again, his money and gold yeah. and all that you yeah know that. Oh, no but yeah. i mean i mean i mean but i mean there's a lot more to the so the costuming, the, um, the oh, costuming, sure. yeah, the teeth, yeah, the, and the eyebrows, and the looks hair, like a yeah. whole face. Yeah, yeah. Considering that this is thirty years before Star Wars, so Alec Guinness was a young man, and they made him look completely, you know. But also, yeah, I, was, I was trying to pull out Obi Wan Kenobi from under all of like the yeah. the fake beard and hair, and I couldn't do it. I really couldn't. I would say, like more importantly, it's three years after the Holocaust, right? I mean, it's crazy. Like that, you think about the timing, and like. Well, yes, yeah. and, th- and that's why when earlier I compared this to, you know, a, a piece of propaganda that you've seen, you know, visiting old Holocaust museums and you see the sure. propaganda they would put out about, you know, I forget the name of that character, but that's the eternal Jew, the, the eternal Jew. I mean, this isn't a coincidence. This is they use that as a model. I mean, this is a couple of years later and and it's his whole characterization. And I know they're working from, you know, the Dickens text that also talks about the Jew. And I think, you know, Jeffrey, you definitely alluded to some of that morality or that that kind of religious context, which this is a very religious film, but of, you know, using the Jew as this kind of, as a vehicle almost for a Christian redemption, the way that you can redeem the Jew. And I would love to hear more of your thoughts about that. But it was clear that every Jewish choice here wasn't incidental, but it was very intentional. 
Well, yeah, no, I, I think it's a it's a great looking film uh, as black and white. I mean, the contrast is extremely strong. Um, the the scenes in terms of their uh, the the language of cinema, uh, the imagery, you, you really don't need a lot of dialogue. Actually, you can follow it. I'm sure pretty well silently. Yeah. Um, for me, the most powerful scene is when he um, after he leaves the workhouse. No, no, no. Yeah, after he, after he is uh, sold from the workhouse to a coffin maker, and he has to spend the night with this gigantic coffin next to him. It's terrifying. I, I thought that was fantastic. I thought all of the portrayals were great. I thought Sykes was great, really evil, mean, but without being without being ridiculous, you know? But very believable, very menacing. I thought uh, Nancy was great. I mean, you know, my heart goes out to Nancy. Uh, the, the Nancy in the 1968 version is really also fantastic. And she sings a song, a heartbreaking song about her love for Bill Sykes. When, because he needs me, something like that. She's, mm -hmm. she's devoted to him, even though he is loathsome. Yeah. Well, before we move on, I would be remiss not to mention the dog who also puts in an amazing performance here, kind of doing exactly what's told. I mean, emoting, like I could tell how yeah. panicked the dog was around Bill in the wake of the murder. So just shout out to all the amazing performances. But you can move us forward, Daniel. What no, I was just going to gonna, say? was that dogs called Bullseye? Is that right? Something like that? Yeah, I think so. Um, I wanted to add a little bit of context on two points just to, to dial it back a little bit. So what I had read was that Dickens uh, mentioned, you know, you know, we talk about now like feedback for characters as being like, oh, this is an anti-Semitic portrayal. But even when the book was written, he had gotten feedback that it was like an anti-Semitic portrayal. But he was his he had said that the character of Fagan was based on the idea that there were a number of Jewish gangsters at the time and that Fagan was likely based on this criminal at the time called Ike Solomon, who was uh, a criminal of note at the time. So. Already he had some sort of excuse or like a explanation as to, I don't know if I buy it, but we could just chalk it up to very uh, blatant anti-Semitism. But I, I'm more excitingly, I wanted to talk about David Lean, the director, um, as an editing geek and stuff like that. I wanted to get in, you know, he, he directed like huge films, you know, The Bridge on the River Kwai, Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago. He did, in addition to Oliver Twist, he also did Great Expectations. He did that a few years earlier. I believe. Yeah, two years Oliver. earlier, which yeah. is wild. And then, but I guess his style was uh, called pictorialism and like all this editing stuff that he um, pioneered went on to be uh, lauded by, you know, Spielberg, Kubrick, Scorsese, Ridley Scott, that kind of thing. So uh, seeing him take this film and really do it in such a nice way, like you said, Jeffrey, with this very, um, like, is it is it German expressionist film like you know when you think about like Fritz Lang like very high contrast and all that kind of stuff is that yeah, yeah. and the so-called Dutch tilt oh yeah I did notice that I that was, was... A, I was literally about to say to you I clocked the Dutch angle and I didn't put it in the context <laughs> of I mean this is literally German he's a German expressionist filmmaker yeah sure that's really cool uh you know he's he's the English dude but I feel like I always Think of Citizen Kane as being like the main example that they teach you in film school of this Dutch angle. It seems like he was married six times. That's all I have to say about him, but he seems like a pretty interesting guy. But let's talk about the movie. You know, I think we kind of covered sort of, uh, you know, high level thoughts, but, are, you know, do you want to dig in? 
um, in any particular spot. I have a few things. Well, I was in. hoping I was go hoping ahead. that we could go back a little bit to the Dickens sure. thing. Yeah, about please, please. The reception of the novel and whatever second thoughts he may have had. Mm-hmm. Um, well, f- first of all, he's he's referred to as I alternatively either as Fagin, Fagin the Jew, or quite often simply the Jew, Der Yid. And um, there's really sort of no excuse for that. And not to mention that uh, his his role as corrupter of youth, as mafioso, as the person who doesn't actually commit violence but condones it, as a, a miser who is secretly wealthy, you know, mm. those he calls Jews, himself a miser. No like matter how, that quote right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, I mean, this is part of the 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 uh, the libel against Jews. No matter how poor they are, you know that they have diamonds in their pockets, right? They're right. pretending to be poor. They're not really poor. Yeah. Right? This sort of thing. Yeah, of course. But uh, all right. So here's another thing. Eventually, um, there's a, a Jewish woman who engages him in a series of letters. And uh, he does in subsequent versions tone things down a bit and begin to just refer to the character as Fagin. Um, But what I think he does is he submerges his anti-Semitism because he still has at least one great, let's say, crypto anti-Semitic story that he hadn't yet written, and that would be A Christmas Carol. Hmm. Right. So he makes Ebenezer Scrooge. Uh, he, 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 right. He doesn't identify him as a Jew. But to me, he absolutely reads as a Jew. And his yeah. partner, Jacob Marley, as well. And so here you have the idea of uh, the Christians are working for the Jew. The Jew is not paying him well, uh, paying them well. They are living so badly. And the Jew, the Jew, the Jew, why don't you give us your money, you Jew? Right, because you know there have been all kinds of Jew taxes all over the world. Taxes specifically for Jews, uh, taxes in in the Arab world, taxes in uh, the Christian world, where Jews were forced to um, buy last names. Um, all kinds of special Jew taxes. Um, so you know, it, it sort of reminds me a little bit of of uh, Sartre's uh, anti-Semite in Jew. You're familiar with this. So the question is, like, why do Sartre sort of says, well, you hate these things about Jews and you stereotype them in such a way, but what about your society may may force them into certain types of behavior? Now, we could we could question we can question that that as well but it's it's an interesting argument i'd like to talk about whether or not like what do you do with a story or a a film like this that's so excellent and yet also kind of hateful and disgusting (laughs) right uh that's a that's a good question i mean we'll see at the end of the podcast i guess you know (laughs) (laughs) no but i i appreciate that question because i think we were talking about our general reflections and I definitely admired a lot of what we're talking about you know the cinematography I thought it was beautiful it was well structured but it was hard for me to get over you know like you were saying Daniel kind of getting past the Fagin depiction not only because it really was so glaring and they added layers to the character every new scene we introduced him he was either acting devilish or he was right you know literally counting money but it just feels like the morality of the film positions him as the ultimate evil and kind of paints Oliver against him. 
even though I think there are worse characters and you can you can make the case that, you know, Bill is the one who's explicitly murdering. He's the one who kidnaps Oliver and maybe he's, you know, the one to one. But I, I think from a, you know, in I guess this is Oliver traveling from, you know, the highs and lows of, you know, his his experience of society, of the way society treats him. And there are plenty of lows, but Fagin represents, I think, one of the most enduring and one of the most kind of the, the movie goes back to that low of the Fagin world that he's created with all of the people, with all the kids that he kind of harbors in a way that was, I mean, obviously the most memorable and clearly the most present to me when watching the movie. So it doesn't feel like a movie where you can say, a, you can get past it, or even B, well, had they just dressed up the character differently, it would have been fine because I don't I don't think the movie works. I don't think it's a movie without Fagin. I think that's a big part of the story is how can Oliver get as far away from, you know, if he goes down the Fagin path, he's pulling him towards the darkest possible future for Oliver. But if he can be pulled back into the into the world of Mr. Brownlow, then he can avoid, you know, this this troubling future. You know, a lot of the movie, honestly, is about the way that people are talking about how he can be used in the future, how we can, you know, how sure. he'll make for a good undertaker. He'll be good at pickpocketing. He'll be good for this. And if you look at the movie that way, which I think the movie sees itself, it's it's how can we pull him, like I'm saying, away from the Fagan lifestyle and towards the Mr. Brownlow lifestyle. And that to me makes this a troubling watch. And I'd be interested in seeing other versions because I, I haven't. But I don't know how the story exists without that. I mean, I think that's maybe why... They're like, oh, let's try this musical version and see if we can kind of sweeten it up a little bit because it's ultimately kind of a pretty dark story. And I think what rescues this film from being like such a bummer is that, you know, there's Oliver's humanity and we have Mr. Brownlow and kind of like the the nicer, you know, you need you need horrible to be able to you need dark to see light, I think, you know, and I, I think um, it is interesting that like I like that this idea that you brought up, Harry, the, the whole notion of Oliver being a useful person to someone, whether it's like physically or what he represents. Um, and it's interesting, too, about like Fagin, that he doesn't actually do any of the dirty work. He kind of like whispers to Bill Sykes, oh, by the way, she might be a threat. You may want to do something about that. He stopped short of act. He's obviously not going to get his hands dirty as a, as like a smart Jew, I suppose, maybe. Is that what we're saying in the film? That like the Jews don't get their hands dirty. They have the goyim do it for them kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, actually, I don't know. <laughs> this is pretty, think, yeah, pretty, it's a pretty dark. I think film. it's easier. I think it's easier to make the claim that the Jews are evil if you don't have to point to any actual proof. And you could just say, well, they're implicitly evil in the way that they sure. you know, yeah. whisper in everyone's ears. So this feels like it's just yeah. it's furthering all those harmful stereotypes, like you said, of this, you know, 1948 set film. Right. Or, I mean, do you feel I'm trying to look for like a there's obviously not a huge silver lining, but like, does anyone feel? <laughs> I'm not pro this depiction of Fagan, just let's get that straight. But I'm just saying, like, is there any part of any of you that feel like maybe because it's so like cartoonishly bad that like you don't really take it so seriously and you know it's like car cartoonishly like fake and evil and like it's hard to take it seriously kind of? I don't think that's the way people are. <laughs> yeah, okay. I All think right. That, I know, thought it was worth a shot. This know? was a serious drama. Sure. And yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. people would uh, take away with the obvious. Uh, there's, there's another element to Fagan that comes out in the novel and comes out in the 1948 version, but not in the 1968 version. And that is Fagan's queerness. Mm -hmm. Yes, he is. He is not. He is a he is a lover and keeper of young boys in many ways. 
Oh. This is sort of implied yeah. in the book. In fact, one of his adolescent cronies uh, is referred to as Charlie Bates, oftentimes referred to simply as Master Bates. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, in the yeah, book, yeah. you're saying. In the book, in the book, it's ah. it's fairly clear that that uh, that he's something of a pervert. Um, and in the 1948 version, if you look for it, I think you might be able to find something in in Alec Guinness's. And I think should we call him Sir Alec Guinness in this context? I'm not so sure, but uh, <laughs> Sir Alec, uh, in his portrayal that. Um, that is 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 you know leads into also some gay stereotypes um so that is that is a strong current in the film it does not come out in the 1968 version where fagan doesn't seem to be like sexual in any kind of way right he's not, he's not straight he's not gay he's mostly interested he's, he's a money sexual yeah hmm uh. You're, you're, I mean, I'm, I was looking for that silver lining, but it's very quickly diminishing. Like, I'm like, all right, never mind. Yeah, it's it's I a conversation. Know. It's a conversation that I want to pick up again when we, sure. uh, you know, do our categories later, our sort of good for the Jews, this depiction. I, I think, yeah, there, there's like a Mel Brooks version of a Fagan, of, of this story, you know, where Fagan is played, you know, to the most ridiculous extremes. Right, kind of, right. You know, they're satirizing it to the point of how does this make sense? But this movie's, you know... As much as it's you know it's known that he's this Jewish character, do they do they call him a Jew? I know you said in the text they do, but do they actually in the movie itself? Not in the movie, not in the. And movie. I think, and I think right. I, I don't think this movie is trying to make you know this but, commentary but, on. But yeah. but he does he does um, if we can say look Jewish. Um, Absolutely, that's well. That's what I was going to argue. And 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 in the sixty eight in the sixty eight version as well, and in the sixty eight version where the music was actually uh, written by a Jew, um, the the songs that Fagan sings have, I think, a little bit of Jewish cadence in them. Yeah, there, there's certainly an accent even in this film. This sort of Europe, this thicker European accent, and it's just, but it's also like a lisp that he has, like a gay lisp. Oh, yes. I'm telling you. That's yeah, what it's I about. mean, I, I appreciate exactly. I appreciate the context you're bringing in from the book, but he's not really shown having any real relationships outside of the children that kind of live in this big den with him. I mean, there's there's clearly something perverse about the situation when the Dodger kind of brings uh, Oliver for the first time. He's like, "Oh, come, Fagin takes care of us. Like, just come right. with us." And you walk in, and he's just, you know, he's there Making with his hot kids. dogs just... for the kids. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Look oh, at right. look, look at the, the phallic foodies. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> the hot phallic food that he's yeah. pulling from the from the uh, from the fire. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, like Nancy at some point mentions that like Fagin raised her, and like Bill Sykes clearly has this thing going on with Nancy. But at no point in this conversation does Fagin like look at Nancy with, you know, with these kind of like uh, lecherous eyes or anything like that. He's like you said, Jeff, I think he's more attracted to money. I think the look that one would oh, normally yeah. associate with like looking at a woman when the when the treasure chest opens, his eyes go wide and like the lights shining on his face and he's like, eh, money, eh, you know. So, yeah, it's uh not, not and, and it's money that he's keeping to himself. Right. It's it's money that no one else can see. Mm -hmm. Right. At, at a certain point, uh, Oliver wakes up and Fagan basically says, "You didn't see what you saw." Right. You. <laughs> you didn't. You right? didn't or hear me. Have, 
Yeah, was he like trying initially, like he was trying to sell him off to someone else? I think that deal didn't go through, but right? That, that was the guy who came back later and said, well, I'm going to get my money back, right? And he said, no, 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 deal's off. Like you gave me your money. So again, it's like not only is he scheming and whatever, but like he's a shady businessman who like will take someone's money and not give them what they're owed. Oh, Fagan. <laughs> Yeah. Speaking of uh, I Fagan, we can <laughs> we can probably do this entire conversation talking about the depiction of Fagan, and I'm sure he'll continue to come up in this conversation. Sure. But I wanted to try to push us in a in a different Jewish lens. Something I sure. picked up on in the movie. Maybe we could play a little bit of the stretch game and try to pull it out and and shift our focus to another thing this movie does, and maybe talk about some of the decision it does in terms of its morality and maybe some of its religious influence. But. One of the things I actually wanted to raise was the use of names and naming okay. in this movie. You know, we're talking about, I mean, the naming of the Jew, Fagan, of course. But, you know, Oliver is a character who, from the very beginning, he's given this kind of, I, I don't know what to call it, like a, like a name up by technicality, right? They they specify in a specific scene that didn't need to be included in the film, but someone working at the, uh, at the home says, I name all our fountains in alphabetical order. The last was an S. Swabble, I named him. This was a T. Twist, I named him. Why, well, you're quite a literary character, sir. <laughs> well, well, perhaps I may be, Mrs. Connor. So they clearly point, you know, they're pointing the audience towards the use of naming here. And then I don't remember them all offhand. Maybe you guys can help me. But I think he get, he gets at least two other names throughout the film. I actually no notice in one scene, uh, I forget who it is, probably uh, Tom or someone is, or Bill is calling him Youngin a bunch. So because yeah. I heard it enough times, I said, let's count that as a fourth name. Sure. But he also... He gets the name when he goes up for trial, right? What was what was he called Tom, there? Tom something. Oh, yeah. His rightful name. Tom White. And then obviously we learn of his true parentage. And that would obviously give him a new last name if we were to trace down. I don't know if it would be Brownlow because he's the daughter. Because because he's only related to him through her daughter. But, you know, there would be some new name. But there's clearly at, every, at each one of these new stages on his journey, he kind of gets endowed with a brand new name. And... I think there's a lot of parallels we can make to the Jewish concept of names. There's, there's clearly a lot of biblical examples. I mean, Daniel, I know we discussed, you know, the naming of Avraham when God changes his name from Avram to Avraham and what that symbolized in his new stage in his life. I was thinking of, you know, Yaakov when, you know, the character Jacob, when he gets that new name of Yisrael as kind of when once he's encountered God and he kind of takes on this new sense of, you know, his new relationship to God and he evolves. So I think there's something that's going on in the film with this. And I just wanted to hear what you guys made of all the new name changes for Oliver and whether that might have had Jewish inspiration, if there's some Christian inspiration for that, or if you think it just comes from, you know, somewhere else in the movie. But uh, I wanted to hear your thoughts on this. I think it's very interesting, but I, I don't really um, have much to say about that. The The only thing that I that I would like to talk about that Harry raised that I can talk to is Please. this question of, in the Fagan world, Oliver is is to be used, and in the Brownlow world, Oliver could chart his own course and be his own person, right? In the Fagan world, he'd be ruled by scarcity. He would be ruled by you know poverty. He'd be ruled by having to Survival. be a refuge from 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 the law. He would also essentially own his safety to Fagan and Sykes and other characters. You know, he'd be he'd be sewn into a certain life where he would his trajectory would be charted out for him without much in the way of freedom or redemption. But there is a redemptive narrative to the film. You know, at the end of the day, justice is done. It's like almost like a Greek tragedy in a way. Right. At, at the end of the day, uh, Oliver is delivered to this sort of new holy family 
right? This new mother figure, this new father figure. He, he will have everything in life. Um, Fagan is given his due justice. Uh, Sykes is dead, right? And no one had to kill him. In a way, the accident that befalls him, so to speak, is like an act of God, right? I mean, Absolutely. he is just he is just put out. Right. Well, he we don't like, see it, you know. Right. Just to explain exactly, he like he's holding a rope. He kind of wraps it around his head. I think just for safekeeping, so he can free up his hands. And then he gets shot, falls back, and ends up catching his neck right on the rope, and and that's how he dies. Yeah. And Nancy, hold on. I want to I want to end with with Nancy, but we shouldn't forget about Nancy. She's an important character. She she spends most of her her existence in the in the novel uh, as as a prostitute. But at the end, she redeems herself by turning in Sykes and by caring for the well-being of Oliver, even at her own risk. And although she dies, we know that she will be redeemed. Well, to tie that back into the question I ask about names, I mean, it sounds like, you know, Oliver at every stage is is almost what, what the names kind of symbolize is less about, you know, the new name being a new change, but it, it I think it represents his agency in each of one of these scenes because at every step he's given a name, right? His name is thrown on him, twist, and his name is given to him by the undertakers when he's working there. And he's referred to by as young and he in when he's under Fagan's uh workhorse. Domain. He's called workhorse, right? Oh, he's right, workhouse, he's called, workhorse. I don't know. Something like that. Right, because he came from the workhouse. So workhouse, right. All these names were given to him. And I think like you were saying that when he finally gets this agency at the end, when he finally is able to control his life, I mean, in some ways, there's no big scene where he says, call me, Oliver, you know, something. It's not like he claims the name, but in some ways his name is returned to his birthright and it it stops being this kind of artificial name given to him by a person. And it's almost his divine name has is returned to him. His, his name by birth is returned to him. So I think there's something in the redemption of you know, finally finding his true persona. Yeah. I'll just say this in the 1922 silent version, when he learns of his name, um, he, he, he stands and he actually smiles. Nice. It's, it's like he, you know, it, and there's like a, a title that says right. something like, you know, so I'm happy. This, this is featured. <laughs> this is, this is noted in the film. So I wanted to posit this idea of it being Jews on film. Um, stretch. Okay. I mean, not so much stretch train, Harry. Let's let's save the train whistle for later. Okay? We'll see. Yeah. I, I just thought, you know, I'm looking at this through, uh, you know, through Moshe colored glasses. If you if you think about it, come along, fine, get on the stretch train, whatever. I just thought, you know, he, he grows up an orphan under in, in like slavery-like conditions. Um, you know, there's parts where he's you know, beating up the Egyptians, so to speak. I feel like he, he was beating up um, Workhouse, the guy who calls him Workhouse a lot. Right. I think that's Noah, the oh. person working Noah, with Noah. Yeah, he's beating up Noah quite a bit, and he gets in trouble for that. Picking oakum in the fields, whatever that meant. I think at the beginning they're doing that. So maybe there's some sort of like Egyptian connection there with slavery. And then I thought just this whole, this whole like you said, Jeffrey, this redemptive journey of him, like being raised in royalty, to be like this Prince of Egypt type figure, but he's really in, in England. I, I don't know. I thought it was, it was kind of neat. Um, an, an interesting way to look at the film, somewhat of a stretch, but you know, just an idea I want to toss out, see if anyone is willing to get on the train with me. I got seats for both of you if you're interested, but if you don't want to get on the train, I'm fine to move on. Well, um, having read Moses and monotheism, I know that the, this sort of, um, hidden tzaddik or hidden child that will one day be redeemed 
is a really old story and it actually predates uh the, the predates Moses. That's but I'm just saying. Um is I don't see him the Oliver figure as be as speaking for his people. Like mm -hmm. he doesn't have any people to right, speak, right. speak right. of or for. Yeah. He doesn't claim to speak for God in any kind of way. Um, the only thing that he does at the end is, you know, ask God to forgive, which is like Jews. We're all about shuva and forgiveness, too. But mm -hmm. this strikes me as a very Christian way of looking at things. And mm -hmm. also just the way that all the characters, well, not all the but some of the characters sort of uh, repent before mm -hmm. they're destroyed. Uh -huh, you know, yeah. this sort of thing. Yeah, Jews, yeah. you're bad. <laughs> you're going down. <laughs> Who does Oliver ask for forgiveness from, or is he pagan? Uh, God, you uh, know, save his soul. Ah, interesting. I can I can give you the quote. What yeah, and that and that doesn't make it explicitly into our version of the movie, but I know that that comes from. Oh, the, uh... oh that's in the original text. Got it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, then I guess I'll just take this train ride by myself. <laughs> I'll, 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 yeah, let me let me see if I could give you some steam, but also take some away because I kind of agree okay. that. I, I think that there is clearly this kind of redemption narrative. I mean, he's sure. under the oppression of, of you know, quote unquote, slave slave masters at the beginning. And even, you know, well, I'll, I'll mention this because it's, it's funny that we haven't yet. But before seeing this movie, the only thing that I knew about Oliver Twist was the. Please, sir. I want some more. What? What? Ask for more. I always thought it was like, can I have more soup? Which maybe one of the versions does change it to that. But in here, I think it's they're eating some gruel. You know, maybe that's, you know, Moshe standing up asking, you know, the Egyptians to to make their bricks or to let right, their people right. go. And he's he's kind of the one who pulls the short straw. He pulls mm -hmm. his, his staff, so to speak, and, and kind of goes to them. There are a lot of little stretches we could throw in. But especially but... because, well, because, and I think Jeffrey pointed out that he doesn't he's he's not intentionally redeeming a people it really is sure, about sure. self-service here and it's also i think it just plays into this you know oppressed to redemption freedom narrative that sure, sure moshe fits into but it's hard for me to claim that it's only moshe and not you know number different was so i think the it, it can fit into like the fun stretch game and you know as one of the most famous stories ever told i'm sure there's some inspiration you know even to charles dickens as he's writing the story but um, but I'm not sure I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go with uh, Dickens did not intend okay. the motion parallel right. when he created I, Oliver. I feel like we need a 2023 version of Oliver Twist where Oliver like John Wick style fights all of the old like all the urchins and and like has a showdown with Fagin at the end and then like frees all of them or something like that. I feel like we're well, right. Pesach is coming up. You can you can start putting together the new version. Tell it over at your uh, at your Seda this year. I think we're due for a remake. That's all I'm saying. Um, yeah. Oliver, I'm your father. <laughs> I mean, we could do it in space too. That's you know, true. That's true. <laughs> Absolutely. That's right. I'm Similar into that. Story. I mean, this is a story about, you know, mysterious parentage and finding yeah. out who his grandfather is. So Absolutely. I think uh, a lot of the tropes are there. I mean, on the flip side, right, if we don't want to go Moses, we could go Jesus, right? Like there's this sort of like immaculate conception. Mom comes in, she's pregnant. That like an opening scene where she's like wandering the desert, like leaning against the tree and the rain's coming down. And and it's like, who is this woman? Where does she come from? How did she get pregnant? We don't know. And who is right? Stuff. And who is his father? We never learn. 
Maybe it's Hashem. Who knows? Or yes, or or like Christian God, we'll call it. But yes, yes. Sure, Christian I think, God. Uh, but I, I actually think that already is a, a more compelling analog. I think there's a lot of Christian ideology in this film, and uh, right, and that that sort of immaculate conception, boy without a father, that kind of checks out sure. to me. Sure. This has been great. Should we take a quick break? Take a breather. We'll come back and we'll kind of talk about some categories about, you know, some, some categories Harry's going to introduce us to, and then we'll kind of give a, a score to the film on a scale of one to five stars of David, Jewish stars of David, if you will. And uh, yeah. And then I would love to hear about what you got going on, Jeffrey. You know, I don't think I did your bio justice, so I'd love to hear about more of all that stuff. Does that sound good? All right. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Jeffrey Wengrofsky to discuss the 1948 version of Oliver Twist. I'm going to hand it over to my mate on the stretch train. I forget. Did you join the stretch train in the before the break? I, I got off a couple stops too early, I think. Okay. Before, well, I'll call yeah. from you from outside the window. I'll say, Harry, can you introduce the categories, please? What's that? Uh, yes. Um, uh, so as we started with our last episode and we're going to continue to do, we're going to go through a couple, a couple different categories just to pull out some of our favorite moments from the film. But the first thing that I wanted to ask about and see if you guys wanted to take a minute to think about it, but what would you argue is the most Jewish scene in this film pointing to one scene that happens in the movie, say here's where the movie reveals its Jewishness or however you want to interpret it. What's the most Jewish scene? Oh, I, I have one. I mean, it's kind of a, Mm. They're all they're all kind of like Fagin related, but I thought I one, 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 one thing that was kind of interesting, I mean, you know, Fagin aside, I think just like there was one part where he's like taking out the treasure from the uh, bag, I think that Sykes had like found for him and he took out two candlesticks. I'm like, boom, Shabbat candles. So that's that's sort of my that's my vote. You know, um, that was that was memorable. That was slight, memorable. Slightly stretch, but I clocked those pretty, uh, you know, pretty straightforward. So anyway. I'm sure there's a deleted scene on the editing room floor of Fagin lighting Shabbat candles for all the teenage boys in his care. Anyway. For me, having read the book, I just see Fagin as a very Jewish character, and I can't point in the 1948 version to anything in particular that he does that is specifically Jewish, I suppose. Although in his in his way, he is certainly a, a stereotype of, of the Jew, whether or not we ever meet such a, a beast in reality is another thing. Harry, please save me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to add on because it's kind of impossible to answer this question without invoking Fagan. Unfortunately, you know, sometimes the most Jewish scene is not the, the most positive, most beautiful representation of someone practicing their Jewishness. Sometimes it's the scene where it's like, I mean, it, it's it's that first still that we see of Fagin, right? It's this guy looks like a Jew. This is Jewish. Right. I wanted to get a little bit cute and throw out just one scene that's kind of a Jewish idea, which is like I mentioned earlier when Bill, right after he kills Nancy, when he kind of, you know, they have those superimposed faces of he sees, I think, Nancy's face and Bill's face and uh, and Fagin's face kind of over his shoulders. And, you know, I'll call it, you know, the eye in Hara, right? The evil eye, the 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 kind of devil in your ear, that, that evil eye kind of telling you like, oh, I should have done this. And Fagin maybe acting as that is, I don't know if it's invoking this Jewish idea, but it's certainly an expression of it. So uh, I'll, I'll call maybe that specific thing the most Jewish scene, but 
I think the answer can be across the three of us. You know, anytime we see Fagan acting particularly stereotypical. Um, I'll move us on to hopefully a little bit of a more fun question. And this is one that we obviously touched on earlier in the episode, but it's the question of what are some of the biggest or the biggest, let's say, stretch or biblical illusion kind of specifically that we can tie to the film? And we we talked about the the Moshe, some of the Moshe stuff earlier, but is there anything just for the creative exercise? Again, this isn't maybe a movie where all of that is intentionally embedded in, but uh, I, I had one that I was kind of excited to uh, to throw out that might be a little bit of a reach and maybe you guys can join me with it. I mean, I'm ready to get back on my stretch train. I have another ticket. I feel like this notion of Oliver kind of being like a wandering Jew, constantly just like never sitting, you know, sitting still, always going from, you know, from the orphanage to the workhouse to walking seven seven days by himself from one city to the other. Very glad to see you, Oliver. Very, aren't we, my dears? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, how far have you come? I've been walking for seven days. Walking for seven days? Beaks yes. all right. Much like our Jews running, you know, walking 40 years in the desert, um, and then going to Fagin's place, and then going to, you know, wherever that, you know, uh, Mr. Brownlow's uh, mansion, and then back to Fagin's. Just kind of never sort of sitting still for more than a little while. Um, that sort of, you know, that sort of illusion, I think, uh, stuck out to me. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, Fagan also doesn't really have a place. I mean, it's wherever it's like, I think that they're kind of squatting, you know? Yeah. So, but what he has are possessions. And the, the Jew, once upon a time before the state of Israel and all this, we didn't really have a place. But sometimes we had whatever was on our backs. And it seems to me that Fagan is in that kind of precarious state. I'd like to say this. There's yet another telling of this story, and it's done as a graphic novel by oh, Will Eisner. Oh. Will Eisner. Will Eisner. Me, Mr. Will comic Eisner. Book. He's great. And uh, it's called Fagin the Jew, and it retells the story from Fagin's perspective, and I would recommend it. Yeah, I think he, he did a contract with God, but he also did a graphic novel that I highly recommend, which is sort of the history of the protocol of the elders of Zion, like its roots, like where it originally came from. It looks like Jeffrey's going to pull it off the shelf right now. Yeah, I got it. I got it. I mean, for those who are listening and don't know Will Eisner, I encourage everyone to go look him up because he is the cat's pajamas. There it is. It's a great comic. Um, you know, it's it's fascinating knowing that a lot of these tropes started from that, you know, that document, the protocol of the elders of Zion and there's Fagin the Jew. So I think I need to go check that out. It's sort of like a midrash in a way. He kind of fills in, it makes up Fagin's story. I, I um, honestly, I forgot that that existed. So thanks for reminding me. Harry, well, what, do you, what do you have? It sounded like you had one in the chamber ready to go, huh? I know. I, I actually think you might have pulled me back on your train because when you were talking about Oliver, I didn't. Did I don't you? know if I'm behind the wandering Jew, but okay, okay. when you were describing his you know, escape from you know, what we called, the, I mean, the most slave-like conditions in the beginning when we first meet the children at the, uh, at the home, they're kind of stacked up on each other you know, behind like bars. I don't remember the exact shot, but there's clearly the slave imagery. And then... You know, you, when you were talking about journeying for seven days, I mean, that felt like traveling through the desert, right through the wilderness, and then to end up where he does at the end, which is, you know, to to his holy land. I kind of, I kind of see the read again. I think this is also just story structure, and it's just the redemption narrative. But, right. but I like that. 
I don't know. The the other thing I was going to throw in, which now feels completely out of place because the two of you just brought up some good ideas, but was going to reference the uh, the Perm story because we just celebrated Perm recently. And then, you know, with the bill hanging at the end and the kind of reversal, right, the Perm story tells of, you know, the gallows that uh, that Haman built to hang Mordechai in and then ultimately they were used to hang himself. You kind of get this impression Bill is taking Oliver, trying, you know, holding a gun to him, claiming to kill him, and then his own weapon, his rope that he's using to escape, ends up being the the tool that hangs himself. So, I saw a little bit of a uh, a little parallel. I know Perm is just still on my brain, and again, this this I would again file in the category of not intended by the directors, but still a nice illusion. But I was excited about that one. But here's a here's a category, the third and final category I wanted to raise that I think we clearly can talk about some intention of the filmmakers are uh, the one that we asked, which is, is this film, quote, good for the Jews? Someone watching this movie, what would they think? Oftentimes we come out with a little bit of a, eh, it could be depending on how you watch it, but something tells me we're going to be a little bit more definitive this time in answering this question. So why don't one of you get us started? Is, is this film good for the Jews? Uh... Jeffrey, you're our guest. Why don't you answer this one? Well, I'd have to say that I think it's bad for the Jews, but it's a good film. And I like the right. perversity of that. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think, you know, so this exercise of like whether or not the film is good for the Jews, I think, let's just say you were in a, there's a lot of people who have not met Jews before. And if they saw this movie, how would they think of Jews after seeing it? Let's put Ouch. it that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is not a, for me, this is not a film that is good for the Jews. Or, or even know. moreover, people who are undecided, right? right. We always have to be concerned right. with the undecided, whether voters or not, right? The impressionable, the people that have maybe heard a thing or two, but really aren't so sure. And then they see a film like this and they kind of go, oh, well, I suppose those people are like this. Right. I mean, can I flip the script a little bit and just say, like, this is a film that's like not good for the poor or homeless. I feel like, you know, this is very much like a class movie that like rich people have good with the exception of Oliver, who's really a rich person hidden in disguise with the poor people, you know, so that the poor people have poor morals and with the exception of Nancy. But like on the whole, I think it's and I think the children in the beginning, I, I think this movie is more sympathetic towards people of a lower class and it, it definitely frames redemption as joining into the upper class and exactly. kind of being welcomed right. into this home. But I don't think that's to say that, you know, they are living a good life and the poor people are bad or deserve what they have or anything like that. I think it's just a reflection of troubled conditions. You know, I think that the movie sympathetic to Oliver and to the undertakers and to everyone, every step of the way who, who is struggling. And I, I don't think it, it's, it holds up as a comparison to the way that this movie talks about or presents Jewishness because oh, sure. yeah. it, there, there is no redemption. I mean, we, we said this earlier, this movie is not only characterizing Jews according to stereotypes and having him be this miserly character who calls himself a miser and being this awful kind of bad person, but he also represents you know, sin in this film. He represents yeah, sure. a kind of opposite morality that Oliver needs to escape from. So this movie is really indicting Jews as its kind of main prerogative. And I <laughs> I think we, we, you guys both said, you know, it's a great movie and, you know, it's a great movie with a bad representation of Jews. And that's honestly what's scarier about it. This is a movie that came out 80 years ago and we should not be talking about this, but we are because it holds up. It's so important. It's a classic. It's good. And that's scary that that's the continued representation. And Daniel, you said there are 20 different, you know, remakes of this. Yeah. And I'd be interested to see, like, is there a version from 2015 that doesn't really update Fagan's representation and is, you know, furthering 
indoctrinating into people's minds the the 12 year old on his tv who's watching this and seeing this depiction like is that is that still happening that's kind of scary well i know that there was one in uh 20 yeah just a few years ago i i would uh i would wonder if you could sort of track these depictions with how Jews are generally represented in popular culture at any particular point in time. Right. Right. Mm, 48, I don't think, I think that they, they, I don't even know what, what year was the Nuremberg trials? I mean, I, I, I don't know that. I know that the ADL didn't like this film very much. <laughs> oh, sure. I can imagine. Nuremberg yeah. was 45 to 46. Okay. So, you know, in a way, they had no excuse. They 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 knew all about all that. But um, I don't think that David Lean in making this film was had any. I mean, it could have been much more Jewish. Oh, for Pete's sake. Right. So, you know, Dickens original character was very Jewish, uh, explicitly so, although never religiously Jewish. Right. So he's never he's a Jew, but he's not a spiritual creature. Yeah, he's right? got a he's got a black hat on at some point, like a, almost like a cowboy hat. But it's like a you know that's his like Jewish cap. But he's not. You're right. He's not doing any sort of Jewish acts. Um, and it would be yeah. much worse if he was. Oh yeah, is you know, is much... his is his first name Fagan? Because someone calls him Mister Fagan. I wasn't quite sure if this is like a Yiddishism, or has that ever clarified anywhere in the readings you've done? You know, I I don't remember. Oh, okay. I don't I don't recall. That's a very good question. But John Fagan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's get to ratings. What do you say? Does that let's work? That. Okay. Um, so, you know, typically we will rate the film on a scale of one to five stars of David based on cast and crew, content, which is like the story, and then sort of themes. Um, Harry, do you want to get us started? Yeah, sure. Um, I don't know so much about, you know, the cast crew origins, but it doesn't seem like this is coming from a Jewish place, nor would that kind of fit with a, a sympathetic Jewish portrayal. So I don't think that um, that will uh, aid in this case. Um, in terms of content and themes, I mean, this is going to be a tricky one because normally we celebrate how much Jewishness we can mine from a movie. And it's like, wow, you know, there's there's so much There's three, four stars. There's a lot of Jewish content in here. And there's honestly a lot of Jewish themes. I mean, there's a lot of very harmful themes. Everything we've spoken about the, the Jewish devil representation and kind of how that weighs down on Oliver's story. But even some of the redemption, you know, we spoke about uh, this concept of tshuva earlier. And yes, I definitely think it's all filtered through a Christian lens. But there's a lot of overlap and there's a lot of synonymous ideas that had this been, you know, from a Jewish perspective, could have, it could have, we could have told a very similar story, like maybe even the story of Moshe, you know, according to similar themes. So it's, it's funny because for a movie that's, I think, so harmful or just, you know, so troubling in its depiction of Jewishness, if by, by our criteria, where we look at the themes, we look at the content, it's going to score relatively high i would say on its jewishness scale even though with the kind of asterisk that it's also not good for the jews and can be really harmful so i think i might i don't know i'm interested to hear where you guys are going to come in because the score i think is going to be higher than i i give than i thought i would give but before i get into actual numbers what do you think jeffrey how do you think about you know the overall jewishness of the film on a scale of one to five jewish stars 
Well, um, I think it's sort of a classic in the way that Jews are portrayed, have been portrayed historically. And it may be the most classic that we're going to get. And by classic, I do mean, you know, centuries old sorts of things. Now, there is one significant difference in the types of redemption. Uh, Christian redemption, correct me if I'm wrong, seems to be much more individual-based. Jewish redemption is very much about we get redeemed as a people. Mm-hmm. We we daven as a people, right? I mean, uh, you, you know, we can of course daven on our own, but it's an extra mitzvah to do it in a minion, right? We're supposed to be together, right? With ten um, people. Well, you know, there's a there's a it it is important. Hashem wants Jews to be together, and that, Fagan yeah. is a character in this film without any other Jews. He does not mention any Jews. He never references himself as a Jew. He never references God. He never references Shabbat, although he does touch the the candlesticks. Yeah, I do yeah. remember them coming out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, I, I, <laughs> it would have been fun if when they came out, if he, if, if he wasn't able to touch them, like, you know, the Wicked Witch and the Emerald Slippers, right, you know, right. <laughs> this sort of thing. But, it's um, kryptonite, yeah. But there's nothing there's nothing metaphysical in that way. I mean, it's everything is implied. I mean, his devilishness is implied, but right. but his his spirituality is uh, he is a character bereft of spirituality. I mean, you know, for uh, you know, enter ye who have uh, given up all hope. This sort of thing. So I guess it's up to me now to kind of like weigh in, huh? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. I think you know, based on our criteria, none of it none of the good for the Jews bit weighs into our score. So like, like you said, Harry, devoid of, of the depiction of Fagin, I think like you said, Jeffrey, you know, it's an important depiction of, of, of what an anti-Semitic Jewish portrayal in film looks like. I think, you know, no, no points awarded for me for cast and crew, the content and themes. It's a very religious picture. This whole story of redemption, all of our stretches, I'm going to pepper in for some seasoning, not going to, you know, not going to go super high for that. But I think, you know, overall, I think Fagin as one of the central characters in the film, as a Jew, you know, it, it's going to add something to my score, but I don't want to tease it yet. I want to throw it back to Harry to give us some numbers. Yeah. Um, again, on this completely arbitrary system that we've made up where oh, yeah. I haven't oh, yeah. tracked you know, specifically where this will fall out with our last, you know, 40 movies that we've done, because I don't actually remember where most of the numbers are. But (laughs) in this case, I think if you watch this movie, knowing nothing about it, you're you're clocking Jewishness and you see it there. But you know what? I'm going to change it, actually, because there's a lot of Jewish characterization in the movie. Mm -hmm. But the movie isn't a Jewish movie. It's not telling, you know, a Jewish story. It's not it is telling at a Jewish expense. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to meet myself in the middle here, and I'm still going to give it about three on a scale of three to five, three out of five Jewish stars here, because there's plenty of Jewishness in it, even if the movie is not my pick for my favorite Jewish movie. But uh, where where do you guys weigh in? Above, below? How do you feel about that score? I'd like a- to add one more Jewish element to this thing. Please. And that Please. is that is the blood libel, the classic oh. story of Jews sacrificing children, right? Is there a reference now, to that in the film? No, not not literally. But if you understand that he is this corrupter of youth, he is certainly he is depriving them of their souls. You know, mm-hmm. in a certain way, they are all 
going to be condemned. Mm, He's killing right. them for, for God and for the afterlife, which for Christians is more important than this one. Huh. Yeah. Well, you know, I think they, I mean, according to one Chumash that I read, they, it's assumed that this is sort of uh, the Egyptian influence in Christianity. Uh, Egyptian, Platonic, you know, the 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 alter the alternative dimension being more important than this one is ah. Judaism. Judaism, of course, reveres the spiritual dimension, but also holds this one to be sacred. I I I don't know that it's ever measured which is more sacred, but you sure. Know. So let's talk talkless, shall we? Like on a scale of one to five, <laughs> stars of David. I appreciate the extra context, but I'm pressing you hard here for numbers. You know, with the classic depiction of Fagan and everything, uh, just in terms of its Jewishness, I think that Jews who want to get a sense of their place in the world, I think it's it's one of the things that they have to confront. It's going to be part of their rough and tumble education if they come to my school. I still haven't heard a number yet. <laughs> oh, I give it I give it a a four point one. Four point one. Okay. All right. Out of five. Yeah, that's a strong rating. I, you know, I'm I'm stuck in the middle here. You know, clans to the left of me, jokers to the right. I don't know. You know, it's it's a tough situation. I mean, there's there's this other stuff. One more stretch. You know, Mr. Bumble says something about Oliver being on a diet of meat versus gruel. It's not madness, ma'am. It's meat. What? Meat, ma'am. Meat. If you'd kept the boy on gruel, this would never have happened. And then I was like, is that a kosh root thing? Again, like super stretch, super stretch. But again, that's just like added seasoning. I think overall, I probably clock in somewhere around like two and a half or three. You know, I mean, it's not like maybe even two. Like Fagin being the Jew, Oliver's clearly like not Jewish. I'm just reading into it super well. There's like those nice messages on the wall, you know, like God is good, God is well, all that kind of stuff. But that, you know, it's just, again, added context, added fun stuff, but... I think I'll probably go like two, two and a half stars. Jeffrey Wengrofsky, thank you so much for coming along on this journey with us to discuss Oliver Twist from the 1948 version. Um, I wanted to ask at this time if there's anything you'd like to plug and promote from your myriad of endeavors that you have going on. Well, for, for those uh, people who have made it this far, <laughs> uh, I've got a couple of books coming out. Uh, one about uh, the Rambam and Aristotle. Uh, in terms of mysticism and perception, and the other is a collection of stories. They're both going to come out in the fall. Different publishers, University of Toronto Press and Far West Press, respectively. And um, for those who um, of your uh, in your audience who have ever made short horror films, meaning horror films less than 20 minutes, they should submit to Secrets of the Dead, send me your film. And if I like it, it can be one of the mighty 10 that I show on or around Halloween. Ooh, Ooh that's scary. Oof. Uh, well, yeah, that sounds that all sounds awesome. awesome. I think we'll uh, we'll definitely put all the links to to your stuff in our show notes. But again, thank you so much for being on the pod. Harry, thanks as always for coming along this journey. And I really appreciate you being the one to come on this uh, stretch train with me. You know, I'm glad that you took a seat beside me, even for just a few stops. 
It makes a huge difference. I've got, on, exactly. On I'm, I'm hanging on. I'm not sure if I'm sitting, but uh, okay. You're holding. You're standing up, holding the. You're, exactly. You're not sitting on the train. Okay. Holding the bar. Yeah. yeah, that's fine. You know, you're a strap hanger, and I'm I'm cool with that. Um, but thanks everyone. You know, for listening to Jews on Film. You can email us at JewsOnFilmPod at gmail.com for any comments or suggestions or feedback, things like that. Follow us on social media. We're on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, um, and all those good things. Have a great one. Thanks for listening. Bye. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Harry edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening.